everybody. Welcome to the NFL Road Show, an episode that I have been looking forward to for a very long time, even though my guest has not been aware that it would exist for about a week now. I'm talking to Mina Kimes from ESPN, who I am fascinated by for so many reasons, most notably for me, her career path, which is so different from a sports broadcasting path that I am familiar with. When I realized that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, Hannah Storm specifically, Uh, the roles that I saw women in were very specific. They were primarily sideline reporters. Maybe you could be a feature reporter. Occasionally, you'd see a woman at a desk anchoring, hosting, though frankly, that was not nearly as prevalent as it is today. Uh, There were not women, to my knowledge anyway, that were analysts, experts of the game, people whose opinions of it were sought after, unless, of course, you were talking about a woman's sport, in which case a woman was allowed to Uh, inhibit that role. Um, But that is in the process of changing. And I think that Mina is very much a big part of the reason why. And as a broadcast nerd, I've always (laughs) wanted to talk to her about her path and what it's been like carving out this space for herself. But then this whole Carson Wentz thing happened (laughs) and I couldn't possibly talk to her today and not talk to her about that. So we're going to try to do all the things right now. Let's go ahead and break the huddle. So Mina, hi. Hello. We met one time in passing. I've never actually had to have a conversation with you and I've always wanted to. So thank you so much for making time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. After that introduction, I'm a little bit nervous about living up to the billing, <laughs> but um, no, I've always wanted to talk to you. I, we have so many mutual friends, um, in particular Greg Rosenthal has always yeah. said you and I should get together. My friend from NFL Network, and I'm thrilled to do this. Yeah. So how many shows did you do today? <laughs> at um, well, I, I, I was planning on just doing Around the Horn, but then um, when the Wentz trade broke, we knew we had to have Dan Orlovsky, who's my colleague on NFL Live, video in from Disney World. And then I had to then join in because I couldn't let Dan Orlovsky give his takes on what putting <laughs> them. Um, and he's just such a he's just wonderful. And he's um, the best. He's so good. And so unafraid to give his opinions, even when they're incredibly outrageous. And I disagree with them. So um, we just did those two shows today. And but I, I, I mean, you and I were talking before we started taping. I am just like we, the question that always comes out of trades is who's the winner? Is it the Colts? Mm-hmm. Is it the Eagles? It's I've been saying it's Wentz, but the real winner is us, the media. Totally. We, were, we were starving for content, honestly, just waiting desperately for like I was on day three of talking about Deshaun Watson being tagged in the Miami Dolphins Instagram, and like, I'm just who's so going to go grateful. from worst to first? Oh my like god, those, I know, you know made out of thin air. Oh, and so thank you, thank you, Howie, thank you, Chris Ballard. I needed this. It's all, it's really about me and my needs. You brought up Dan Orlovsky um, and his, um, you know, zooming in from Disney World <laughs> and his vacation to give his opinion about the Carson Wentz trade to Indianapolis. And I was watching and he, as a Carson Wentz fan, came on and suggested that Carson Wentz would be in the MVP conversation next year. In fact, I think he told you that you could book it. I literally was standing there listening to him. Mina, I am not kidding you. I physically sat down like the (laughs) air had come out of me. I was like, I had to just sit down to take in what he had just put into the universe with this MVP thing. And then they cut back to you and your head's exploding with this suggestion too. Speechless, Um, speechless. But again, you know what's so great about Dan? He believes it. There are people in our business who just say stuff 
to get reactions. Dan is not like that. Like he truly believes it. And I want to say this too, because the, the clip, I don't actually react. I'm just so it, like gobsmacked like you. But when I did talk about it later, I think Wentz is going to be better. I don't think he's going to be the guy we saw in 2020. It's just the, the words MVP that um, really are insane. Oh. <laughs> but if you really do think about it, okay. And if, you believe that he will be better than he has been for the last few years and that Indianapolis will be good, then the quarterback that gets that good team to the playoffs is always in an MVP conversation, especially if they are in any way better than they were this year or go further then people will attribute that to quarterback. Like, there's obviously a scenario in which that will not be the case and he'll just be along for the ride and they'll be good in, in a multitude of other ways. I guess the big question now is whether or not the problems that he's had for the last couple of years, were they circumstantial? Uh, is everything fixable? If the circumstances around him are better and they will be better in Indianapolis based on what you've seen on tape, because I know according to GQ, you eat twenty-two all 22 <laughs> tape for breakfast. Um, based on what you've seen, do you think that it was circumstantial or that he's fixable? Um So if the question is, was it the coaching, the play calling, the offensive line being as injured as they were, lack of playmakers, or Carson Wentz himself, which of those parties deserves blame for what we saw? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just it's all of it. Um, I do think and I talked to uh, Ben Solak, who's a a great Eagles writer about on on my podcast about this yesterday. I do think when you watched him last year in, in 2019, he was making mistakes. There were issues with decision-making and mechanics that transcended circumstances. I mean, at a certain point, it's not just the pieces around you when you are bounce passing screens and like refusing to throw shallow crosses and stuff. So I, I, um, I think, Fixable is kind of a it's an interesting word because I think he's going to be better, but I don't think and I said this, Dan, I don't think 2017 is a realistic outcome because I don't think 2017 was sustainable. A lot of the success he had on that season depended on um, numbers that on third down in the red zone that are unlikely to be reproduced. Uh, And also he's had injury since then that's changed his athleticism and the way he looks. So it's a good, it's a good situation in Indy. It was the best situation. Like every quarterback in the NFL should have wanted to play there and he's undoubtedly going to be better. But ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think he's going to be that much better than Phillip Rivers was in 2020. So the Colts really are in a similar situation. Yeah. The quarterback position I think is such a funny one because I think all of us need to a certain degree to be surrounded by things other people that do their jobs well in order for us to look like we are as good as we can possibly look, you know, at our jobs. And I think the quarterback position is one of those that unless you are a Patrick Mahomes, who's like a once in a generation type talent who can fix a multitude of sins, though not all of them, as we learned on Super Bowl Sunday, um, it, it feels like you know, and I've said this a lot, having worked with David Carr for a long time at NFL mm-hmm. Network, I use him as my example. Like he was drafted into a situation where he never had an offensive line. I have no idea if David Carr could have been uh, one of the best quarterbacks of all time. You know, if you're a pocket passer and you don't have protection, you have no shot at showing us what you can do. 
So I, I think it'll be interesting to see what Carson Wentz can do if he has good protection, if he has a running back that can keep defenses honest, which he will obviously have in Indianapolis. If he has wide receivers that can be counted on to make plays or even just be in the right place at the right time. And if he has a coordinator that can call a game that fits all of their collective strengths. So he has a good situation. Maybe it's best case scenario. I think it's it's a it's a good trade for Indianapolis to have made it the price at which they made it, right? Like it seems yeah. like they said, this is what we're willing to give up and, you know, call us back if you're willing to do this. If not, we're not going to beat down your door. And that feels like a smart way to go about it. Yeah, worse, they're giving up. A, it's a conditional first if Wentz plays, I think it's 75% yeah. of snaps, and which seems likely. Um, yeah. They have control over that, by the way. And, uh, you know, they're, it's going to be a later pick. Uh, the important thing to consider from Indy's perspective is they just didn't have options. Uh, once Stafford was off the board, you're looking at Prescott. I really think he's going back to Dallas, probably not going to do a tag and trade. Uh, although if that happens and I'm Indy, I'm, I'm very regretful. Uh, Deshaun Watson's not getting traded in division and right, they're picking 21st that. and they would have to really trade up to get into the big four of quarterbacks in this draft. So all of a sudden it's really like Wentz, Sam Darnold, uh, maybe Jameis Winston, Jimmy Garoppolo. It, it's really like there aren't options, I think, in that group that are obviously better than Wentz. You could argue, yeah. well, Darnold, cheaper price, same variance. But at the end of the day, I think it made sense for them. Um, and yeah, it's it's like at least we've time. seen his upside, right? Like right, so you've yeah. seen what is possible when all things are hitting. For sure. Absolutely. The The question I have for Philadelphia now that I think is the most interesting one moving forward is whether or not they go get a quarterback at six, because I'm a little bit torn about whether or not you think they do. No, no. I think this is your right. This is the interesting question coming out of this because um, six. So I said 21, you're out of it unless you're willing to really get in the mix. So I just finished um, started rather is the better way to describe looking at the uh, 2021 quarterback prospects because it's a process to be draft seasons here. Um, I do a lot of podcasts between now and the draft. And of course, we're going to start talking about our shows. And for me, especially now doing full-time NFL show, I just didn't have as much time to watch as, as much college football as I used to um, outside of like, you know, F- Fields and Lawrence I've seen a lot of, but I had not watched barely any Zach Wilson, uh, the BYU quarterback, aside from seeing highlights on Twitter, Trey Lance, I still have to get into his 2019 tape. So anyways, all that said, Six is a really, really interesting spot because everyone knows Lawrence is going one. And then you've got um, Wilson, Fields, and Lance. And yeah. there are mocks that have them all going in the top five. And it's like maybe Philly has to trade up to even get one of them. And one of the fourths. Oh, it's it, it's so it and, it and then it becomes like, okay, is it worth trading up for them? Or would we give Jalen Hurts more time? Um, it's really a big question mark. Do you, if you do trade, so just to go down the road of that scenario, I'm not trade. If you do draft somebody, Mm -hmm. are you looking for somebody? I mean, obviously if you're drafting somebody that high, you just want the one that you fall in love with, but realistically you're going to get like the one that falls to you probably of those four. Does it need to be one who's in a same stylistic vein as Jalen Hurts? Because you don't want to build an offense in the off season for Jalen Hurts and then be like, oh, whoops, just kidding rookie won the quarterback competition <laughs> and now we're going to run a totally different offense. Yeah. I feel like that creates a complicating factor for them. I think it really comes down to what Nick Sirianni, what kind of offense he wants to run um, and, and how much they believe in Hertz. And then it, this is what's so crazy about 
teams that don't have the quarterback position settled is when you go into an off season, you're having to make all of these decisions at the same time. How good is Hertz? How good is Fields, Wilson, Lance, whoever they think they have can get and I agree with you it, it would be very hard um or and also what kind of offense do we want so you have to to make all of these decisions at once while also looking at your existing personnel trying to figure out how good is our offensive line how much can we spend on playmakers it, it, Philly's pretty capped out um and then you got to just go with it and then there are all these external factors which is what the other teams want to do like are the Jets going to trade Sam or are they going to draft a quarterback or, you know, draft Sua. Like it's, there are a lot of unknowns um, and it's just such a difficult place to be in for, I'd say four to five teams now picking in that range have to all be looking at each other. Like the scene in the office where Steve Carell, Ed Helms and Rain Wilson all have the guns out. I feel like that's what's happening with NFL teams. Do you think that Jalen Hurts is somebody who showed you enough that you would want to move forward with him? No. I think he showed no. enough to compete, but okay. to be the unequivocal number one, I unfortunately don't. I and I say that so thinking he played better in Carson Wentz, yeah. So in the you know in twenty twenty, um, but I don't think I don't think we saw enough out of him to think okay, like this is the guy in Philadelphia. It just feels to me like six. So six is a high draft pick, right? And so if you have a chance to get a quarterback that you think might be the quarterback of your future and you're picking a six, then I guess you have to do that. But I also look at the Eagles, and I think, aside from the fact that they they compete in a division that's very winnable every year, it seems no matter what you put on the field, they have so many holes. Yeah. And so I don't know how good they're going to be anyway. And if you go get that quarterback now, and now you have Jalen Hurts, who is at the very least maybe a passable quarterback in the short term. And I don't know exactly what he is. I haven't seen enough to know what his full capability might be. Um, Then it feels like you might have too, a lot of investment in your quarterback position. And then you're not using that number six draft pick to go fill all of the other holes on the offensive line at wide receiver. Um, You know, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm not sure that I love that for them either. I might even just go, okay, go Jalen this year, fill some of these other holes. If Jalen doesn't get it done this year, then go draft a quarterback next year. And if it doesn't work with Jalen, you'll probably be in a position to draft a quarterback. Totally. I I don't, I think that makes a ton of sense, especially given that they're taking $34 million cap hit this year for Wentz's contract but after next year then it's yeah it's off the books and like so what they're doing is kind of ripping the band-aid and the approach you're describing which is let's just take this year see what we've got in Jalen Hurts heck if Sewell or one of the other many Jamar Chase is available at six whatever um Penny Sewell's the Oregon offensive lineman yeah let's just do that and see what we got and wait and then reboot for 2022 I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's why they, they got to take a real hard look at these quarterbacks in the draft and think, man, do we like Trey Lance enough to where we're going to, you know, take him for Carolina or whoever's got a shot at him. Um, and, and this is always the craziest part. They have three or four weeks to really figure that out. And with Lance in particular, he played one game this year. And this is why it's it, being a GM is really, really hard. <laughs> totally. It's also why this is one. This is one of my favorite at um parts of the season. Yeah. I mean, aside from the actual real football, I love the business decisions that go into this. I love free agency. I love the draft. I love all the nerdiness of it. <laughs> and that you kind of are rewarded for really diving into the weeds because then you know what's going to happen before everything else happens. Same. 
you, uh, as I said, I I find your career to be fascinating because it felt like one that was just so unattainable to me when I wanted to get into the business. I wouldn't have even thought to go down a path that would put me in a position to be an analyst on NFL Live. So I love the fact that you are in that position. Um, but you did you want to be in sports broadcasting and sports in general when you started off? What was the goal for Mina Kimes growing up? Um, just to be a writer. So, you know, which is, was my job when I came to ESPN. Uh, so before joining ESPN, I was a business journalist as an investigative reporter uh, for Fortune and then Bloomberg News writing. How'd about, you, how'd yeah. you land in that? Um, out of college. So when I was in school, I was doing journalism and I got an internship in business journalism. I was just placed at a magazine called Fortune Small Business. So, you know, the sorting hat put me there. Oh God, that's so nerdy. But anyways, I ended up in, in, in business through no decision of my own. I think I wanted to write about like music. Um, and then from there, ESPN approached me in 2014, I think as it was about writing features about athlete, a lot of NFL stories, but just features in general for ESPN, the magazine, which no longer exists. So that's how I came to ESPN. How did that call even happen? Was oh. it just because of the type of writing that you were doing? How does ESPN go get somebody to write for their magazine that hasn't done sports writing before? So I um, was writing exclusively about business and finance and whatnot, but my Twitter was entirely about football, like just and not like like dumb stuff like memes and my terrible opinions. And and then I also wrote a personal essay about football. So they had some inclination, some, some idea that, um, it was something I'd be interested in doing. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like the, you know, when you see like a high school or like a college tight end, you know, they played a different, maybe like they play wide receiver in high school and I get separate happening at the same time. So it's not a very good metaphor, but you get the idea. So they said, Hey, you seem to be interested in a position switch. Um, and I figured why not go for it. It's kind of like a quarter life career change for me. So you were a big football fan. Yes. Was it specifically football? Was yes. it sports in general? Okay, football. it was football. Yeah. I mean, I was like, it was, yeah. we, I talk about NBA for ESPN, like on our general shows and college football and whatnot. And I like baseball too. I grew up a huge baseball fan, but football's always been my main love. Seahawks specifically. Seahawks, yeah. Okay. So it how, was, how did that play out in your free time before that became a job for you? Were you just watching games? Yes. Were you like hardcore into, you know, the fantasy football? Like what, yeah. what, how, how did this hobby look? Yeah, it was just pretty much spending all my free time watching football and um, also spending time on the football internet. Like um, a lot of the uh, chat rooms back in the day. Forums. There's some Seahawks forums with comments <laughs> I've left that I really hope no one can ever associate with me. Um apologies to Jim Harbaugh, blanket apologies for everything I said between the years of like, you know, anyways. Um, but no, I was just gonna say they're friends from the football internet when I was a business journalist that I'm still friends with today um, who uh, now are writers like my friend Danny Kelly, who uh, does a fantasy football podcast for The Ringer. He was, uh, I mentioned this all the time, we were just Seahawks Twitter friends in like 2010 back when I was a business journalist and he was just blogging. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was like my community. And I always bring this up to you because I just feel like I, I'm sure you get this a lot too. Lindsay, you're always like, what is it like being a woman in sports on the internet? How do you do it? Like, Oh, like, and, and it, yeah, it sucks a lot, but there's some really nice parts too. And I think 
for me personally, um, I wouldn't have my job. I wouldn't not because of things I learned, but just because it wouldn't have occurred to me to meet these kinds of people and go down this road without social media. Well, it's funny because when I started off in this business, it was I had all of these hangups and insecurities associated with the fact that I had not played the game and everyone knew I had not played the game. So I was always afraid to ask questions initially out of fear, like in a room, like if I'm doing an interview, I guess even sometimes in that case, like afraid to ask the question because you're afraid that it might make you look like you don't know something over the years I've learned that having not played the game is actually a of benefit to me. Like it is what makes me different because I can isolate and I know enough about what I do know to feel comfortable that if I don't know something, that there's someone in our audience that also yeah. doesn't know it because I'm pretty well informed. So it might be a smart question and it might inform the viewer, which is ultimately the goal. Yeah. So it is interesting how you can find ways to take what you initially see or other people might see as something that is like a professional, I'm going to turn my phone <laughs> off now, um, as, as something that is a knock against you and actually realize that that is one of your strengths. Yeah. I, I by the way, I, I, I don't think people understand how much just asking questions also factors into takes. I, I was talking to a young woman about this recently. Um, someone asked me, well, how do you have takes? And I said, well, you know, I watched and I look at stats and I write down what I see and then I just try to form synthesize it into some sort of stew of opinions. But another thing I'll do is I'll notice something and then ask a question out of it. And um, whether it's something that's showing up in the numbers, like, wow, this quarterback is like weirdly not good using play action, which is weird because most quarterbacks are so much better and what's going on or when they roll to their right, they're, you know, off target or something that shows up on film. I, I sometimes just notice making observation and then asking the natural question that stems from it. Um, it sort of invites people. I think it it's something that people can not only relate to, but learn from, because that's the process we should all be utilizing when we watch football is asking questions and, that's that's what it was like being as a reporter as well. But I think so, I think people are afraid to do that as opinionators because you want to feel like you have the answers and it's okay to not have the answers. I'm very lucky, by the way, to work with a lot of people, a lot of former players in particular, who are not only like subject matter experts, like, oh, I want to ask someone about quarterback play. I asked Dan Olavsky, um, but also love answering questions. And so that's something I've learned to utilize a lot, both on and off the air. So how do you watch the game when you watch games? Because it feels to me, just following you on Twitter, like you watch it with like five different screens <laughs> of analytics up or something like that. And so I've always been curious about how it is that you take in not only the game, but the information that goes along with the game and how you process it all into forming an opinion. So, um, I think uh, like a lot of my colleagues on Sundays, you know, I've got the multi-screen going and we know which games we're going to talk about typically. It's like Cowboys usually. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Always the Cowboys. Uh, yeah, for once it wasn't this year, right? But um, it's not up to us, by the way. <laughs> Big Cowboy. Uh, but yeah, we, we so I figured out, you know, we know what we're watching. And um, then, you know, later throughout the week, I have the opportunity to watch the coach's tape later. Oh, my dog's now coming in. Um, but... I'm watching, taking notes, observing like trends, things that I find interesting. And then, um, you know, I, I, I'm sometimes grabbing 
statistics in game, especially if we're only talking about like Monday night football and it's a Tuesday during the game, I'll be grabbing stuff. We have a great stats and info group, which is who I can ask for stuff, but also, and this is like one of my favorite parts of working where I do, we have access to things like an incredible, just statistical Mm -hmm. tools that like are a dream to someone like me, you know, at halftime, I can see how much zone versus man the Chiefs defense played. What was the Wait, blitz what? rate when they pressured? Really? Yeah. <laughs> is there someone in research that's sending that no, out? Or so is there like a specific analytics arm of ESPN? It's, that's a website that you have access to and I don't. We use True Media, which is um, a like multi-filter tool. So I can pull reports and, you know, I have to kind of search for what I want. And there's trackers. So a lot of our stuff comes from next-gen stats, which I, I can't stress enough, by the way, how different our access to this information is this year from even like two years ago. Yes. Um, a lot of it is th- thanks to next-gen stats and, and what they're doing. But stats and info, they're also constantly building new um, new metrics, new ways of quantifying things like offensive and defensive line play. Um separation, just stuff we didn't have before. And like, I always tell people when they ask me about analytics and kind of what stats matter, quarterback play is impossible to quantify using a single number. But I, during and after games, yeah, it's like so many things happening. You have to watch and see what's, you know, but I love grabbing many statistics and using them to paint a coherent picture. I mean, one thing, like I love next gen stats, for example, they've a couple of years ago started maybe three years ago, completion percentage over expectation, where they're calculating what a quarterback's completion percentage should be based on where their receivers and defenders are and whether they're under pressure and then what it was. It's a good way of evaluating how much scheme helps quarterbacks. For example, Kyle Shanahan's quarterbacks always have really high complete expected completion percentage. That's stuff we just didn't have in the past. So uh that was a very long-winded way of saying to answer your question. I'm watching, usually watching many things at once and then grabbing the numbers more so usually after the game. Um, often they're born out of the sort of questions I described to you, which is like, wow, it really seemed like they were blitzing at a higher rate than they normally do. I can get those numbers very quickly now. It's I, I think that the PFF and next-gen stats and all of the information kind of the the way that that whole analytics community has blown up in the last few years has helped make it easier to be a female opinionator in that it takes away the but you didn't play the game because you're not just sitting and watching game though there's value to yeah. those opinions obviously right but it it you can come with a bunch of numbers and it so it gives you an avenue into the conversation where they have to take you seriously because you're bringing information to the table that not everybody is scrounging up and going through all the math and trying to figure out all this information. And then it opens the door, I think, for you to say, here's what I saw when I watched the All-22 tape, because you've already kind of gone in sideways and and increased your credibility in that way. A lot of my... um, Friends and sort of allies early on in this industry were... um, writers and analysts who were more analytically inclined. I mean, I always tell people, you know, my real start in opinionating was doing the Bill Barnwell podcast, who I think is the best football writer in America and uses is, is extraordinarily well-versed in analytics and has taught me so much about it as well. Um, but 
to your point, like my favorite thing in the world is when I'm watching and then I'm, I trust my eyes, but I don't trust them as much as, you know, like Carol or something, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll watch something. I'll gather stats. And then my favorite thing the next day is to talk to Dan Orlowski, for example, and I have an opinion, even opinion. And when the tape and the numbers match and tell an interesting story together, I, we, both of us, it's so dorky to say, but we absolutely love it when that happens. And um, I do feel like it gives me the confidence uh, to give my takes when knowing that they're supported by facts. Yeah. I feel like over a ton of years of sitting in rooms with former analysts, former players, um, and having conversations and bringing things to the table because of ways that I can figure out information they don't have access to that go goes beyond just what they're seeing with their eyes, that that kind of affords you a certain level of credibility and has boosted my confidence over the years to get to a point where I'm like, okay, no, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I, I like you don't totally trust my eyes all the time. And so I won't tweet something out that I've seen unless I'm really, really confident. Mm-hmm. But I also have not been in the opinion space. You know, I came up as a host and very much when I came up well, and as a reporter, it was very like reporters don't give their opinion. Yeah. You're an unbiased person. You're not even supposed to really have a team that's changed, which I think is really interesting. Um, and if you're a host, it's an unbiased thing yeah. and you're going to ask other people and you're going to let them have opinions and you're just sort of traffic hopping and the industry's changed so dramatically. But um, but it has because I have less familiarity with being in that position of putting an opinion out there. Sometimes I'll put an opinion out there and then I just kind of like get these knots in my stomach, like just waiting for it. You know, can I take it? I'm pretty confident what I just said, but also I don't have that thick skin that's built up over a number of years of having people react by saying like, you're an idiot. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard somebody say. Um, And so I'm curious about how how you got to a point or if you are at that (laughs) point. I assume that you have pretty thick skin as far as that is concerned. But did that take some time? Um. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it used to, I, I, um, you know, I, I get a mix. I, I, I would say I get the same blend of positive and negative feedback as my male colleagues do. It's not like they have it so easy and are, you know, uh, not getting, in fact, as they, evidenced by Dan Orlovsky's yeah, MVP well, take Dan today. is the yeah. thickest skin in the world, but, um, it's great actually. It's what probably his best quality, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, it's just different, the nature of it. A lot of it tends to be, some of it is based on my opinions and that, you know what, that's fine. Like my, I get told, you know, that my rank power rankings are dumpster fire and I should walk off of a cliff just the same as uh, Booger McFarlane or whatever, you know, and that's fine. But um, the difference is that I think, you know, sometimes I, I get in it and it is gendered or uh, a fair amount of it or, or just kind of gross. And um I'm at a point now where that stuff just washes over me. Yeah. Um, it just, I don't, it doesn't even really resonate, frankly, or I also get some race space criti- criticism and um, literally just actually, it was so funny. I just opened, that's not funny, but I opened Instagram the other day and, and yesterday. And the first comment I saw was um, I didn't know that they had sports in China, which I'm not Chinese, What? I, but also like, dude, like, obviously they have sports in China. It's like, not like, I know races are dumb, but like, can you not I even like try to come up with something better than that? Um, the many layers of stupidity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. Um, it's very rare that they're, uh, that the racists are like 
correct in even identifying that I'm Korean, I found. Um, but anyways, that stuff doesn't affect me at all. I mean, it affects me like on a cosmic level where it's depressing, like, you know, think about the world. But um, for me, I, I'm yeah. more so affected as an opinionator when I'm criticized on my opinions and especially when I suspect I might be wrong, which I'm wrong all the time. Totally. The things that affect you are more likely to be the things that you're actually putting some sort of insecurity out there right. about. And the fact that you're a female and working in this industry, I'm in the same boat at this point where I'm like, I have no issues with that. Like, yeah, right. that's a stupid <laughs> comment on your part. And if you say something like that to me, like that doesn't bother me at all. I will not stay up at night thinking about that comment. It's the stuff that hits at something that I think I put an opinion out there that I'm insecure about, you yeah. know, and then if somebody hits me back about that, that's normally. And, you, and then, then of course, I, I do think a lot of our male colleagues don't have that same level of insecurity about just their opinions. And and that's really like, if you want to ask me, like, you know, how, how do how do you when people say, well, like, why can you fix that or whatever? I'm like, yeah, can I fix the last million years of society and the way we we're raised and the things we're taught to value in ourselves? Fucking no. What I can do is just not look. I just don't look as much. I, I, that's such a, uh, sad answer, but, and I, it's a bummer too, because I, I miss a lot of nice things and, um, but I just really don't look at it as much. The feedback at what your mentions. Yeah. I just don't, I, I look a little bit. Um, but it's just, I think part of being in the, not just on television, but in the world in 2021 is learning how to manage your, mental health on the internet. And I've found for me, um, I have to like willfully disengage and compartmentalize. I'm not the kind of person who can read it and have it wash over me. I just know that about myself. I'm too sensitive. Yeah. So it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, I have learned. It's a, very um, it's a very mature take to be like someone else's opinion about me has nothing to do with me. Like that's none of my business. But also yeah. I do think that in our business, I think where where my insecurity comes from uh, with regard to that is that it is my boss's business. You know what I mean? Like like I feel like the bosses will pay attention to Which are people liking lame. her? Is she likable? Is that. she this? Is she that? Did we get positive feedback? Did the rating go up or down when she was on camera? And so that you can't help but be a little bit sensitive right. to those types of things. I think in our business, but in general, you understand the mental health aspect of I need to log off. I need to not look. You know, I can't remember the last time I Googled myself was like well, decades ago, probably like because I've learned the hard way about how that will make me sad for a very long yeah. time. I'm, I'm not there with the mentions. Yet, I'm really though. glad you said that, by the way, about our bosses caring and our employers caring, because I think it's really easy for people to say, well, why are you even on social and who cares? And if you were like, you know, intellectually pure, I hate it so oh. much. <laughs> writers, it's always... Yeah. It's almost always all the white writers, by the, all white guys, by the way, when they're like, you should just not be on social. And I'm like, must be nice to say right. that. But that's not a privilege we have. We have to live in that world and engage with it and be f freaking good at it. It's literally part of my job to be good at it. And I'm not trying to paint myself as a victim. Like, I enjoy it. I love the my whole entry into this business was posting dumb football memes. I love memes. Yeah, you see my Twitter. It's mostly dumb jokes. I love that. If Twitter was only dumb jokes, I would love it so much. I and if everyone was just in, like that's how we all engaged with it. But um, you know, it 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 is part of our jobs now. And I think to say otherwise is just kind of sticking your head in the sand. So another thing that I have noticed about you 
when you were on TV, you're so polished in terms of the things that you say <laughs> in a way that makes me feel very insecure about my lack of polish in being able to articulate something perfectly uh, off the top of my head because it always looks like it's off the top of your head and then it's a perfectly constructed sentence. But your mannerisms <laughs> are not polished in the best possible way. I really do mean this in the best possible way because you, when you're on TV, are you. And I feel like that is what Mina must be like if I was sitting down and having a beer with her Though in my case, it would be wine. I don't know why that just popped into my head. I would never have a beer with you on my end. But anyway, um, but it, you feel like you're you, which feels like a very important thing right now, authenticity in television and you know, now with the rise of YouTube and whatever, everything's changing. But I'm curious about whether or not you've ever had anybody in your broadcast career, a consultant or a boss or anything like that, who's tried to tone that down or ramp that or, you know, giving you feedback in that way because I've had that tons of that, but it might have been just a different time. And oh. now I feel like I, I've always been like, that's really stupid feedback. I've always <laughs> thought that. But then you have to, you know, make your boss feel better or do what they want you to do. I think a lot of it is role because I've heard from a lot of hosts, both male and female, by the way, that they get that sort of feedback all the time about polish and that frankly they just get a lot more feedback about comportment on camera. And um I've never been a host and Lindsay, I suck at it. Um, I once. No, no, I listen to me. I once went to um, a get up in New York. Laura Rutledge, I laugh. She's a host of Live. And I uh, they I they asked me, hey, can you come to get up for a week in New York? Uh, it was around Christmas time. And I was like, sure. It's obviously pre pandemic times. I showed up. I did not it didn't even occur to me they expected me to host. I thought I was just coming on as an analyst. Literally the night before, I'm calling everyone I know, trying to like, how so I had never read a prompter. So but they didn't tell you you're coming to it do was a very just a, it was just a different job. It was just a okay. misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, God bless her. They they it was just totally just a misunderstanding. So but my I had to like learn, like teach figure out how to do all the stuff that hosts do. And my brain just does not work that way. I like reading in what way? Um, so the thing, the, the, the being a host is like being a point guard. I always say Laura's like our Chris Paul, like she's so good at like not only passing the ball around, but also listening, talking at the same time, mm -hmm. seeing like three steps in front of us where a conversation is going and doing it while being polished as you described, because the qualities a lot of the things I do, if a host did it, it would be really weird if a host burst out into laughter and like, like, and completely lost the script and forgot where he or she was. Um, and so my brain, I just can't, like, I'm, I, I would analogize it, analogize it this way. I can't learn a dance move. I can't move my arm and my leg at the same time. I've always been that way my whole life. I'm the world's worst dancer for that reason. And I think hosting, it is like moving your arm and your leg at the same time. And I'm, I'm doing it right now. And um, <laughs> God, God bless. I, I, I see stuff Laura does and I'm like, I marvel at it because it's just so outside of the scope of the way my brain works. Um, so sorry, bring it back to your question again. This is why I, I would not be a good host because I'm took your question and completely went on a crazy tangent. Um, I, I think that in my role, it's just that's you just like don't get that kind of feedback as much. And then I would also add, I came up in television um, working a lot with Dan Levitard and doing a show called Highly Questionable where that's just not how, like it is 
a very meta show where we're constantly making fun of ourselves and it's inside jokes. So um, being good at that show is being yourself. And so yeah. I think I was very lucky in that way. Whereas if I came up in a show where I think it would be polished, mattered more and was valued more, it's possible that I would value those things differently. Yeah. Your personality, your relatability, all those things are the thing that makes that show work. So then when people fall in love with you because you're good at that on that show, then that does, yeah, make it easier for you to be yourself on the other shows where that same thing is not afforded to everybody on the show. Mina, this has been so fun for me. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me a little bit. I thank you so much for having me. I've, I've, Super excited to do this. And me, I, it, it's so awkward when you meet people during the quarantine. Oh, <laughs> so nice to meet you over Zoom. Oh, hi, in your box. And my little, my little, yeah, box. I didn't yeah, even- Neither of our boxes, both of our boxes need some sprucing up. Well, so you, you have g- different backgrounds. <laughs> I know you have different backgrounds. Yeah, I didn't turn my uh, computer around for my fancy TV background. You're getting my hostage situation background, which <laughs> very few, few people see. Um it's uh, it's pretty bleak behind me on the, the this side of my house. I have to admit, and I don't my have my light on. That's that's oh. that's vulnerability, Lindsay. No ring light. That's <laughs> the real you, Unfil- Mina. Unfiltered you knew times. we were going to be talking about this sort of authenticity and you things know, like it's that. It's another woman. I'm just like whatever. Fuck it. Ring light off. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're the best. I really appreciate it.